Let's uh, have a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Father, thank you for this time we have together this evening to look at the Word of God again. Grant us understanding and then wisdom and how we apply what we see in Scripture to our own lives, our own ministry for you. We pray you'll bless each class member here. We pray that you'll smooth out the rough places and give us a a time and opportunity to serve you in a way that will glorify Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, we're looking uh, at this section right here, critical events in the lives of three pivotal figures, 6, 8 through 9, 31. So we are looking at Stephen. We're looking at Philip. And then we're looking at Saul of Tarsus. And these three people are really critical to uh, carrying forth what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Remember in Acts 1, 8, we had a repetition of the Great Commission. That is the Acts statement of the Great Commission. And Jesus said, you're going to be witnesses for me both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And these three men are kind of setting the stage for that because we're going to see... In Stephen, as we talked a little bit of last week, he's going to be breaking down those barriers. Because here we have, you know, a Jewish people who the Messiah comes. All the people that we've seen saved so far in the book of Acts are Jews. But we've been talking about the fact that Jesus envisions a worldwide church, not a Jewish church. But as Paul will tell us, Jew and Gentile in one body, you know. But that's not clear yet to these apostles in Jerusalem. They're still evangelizing the Jews. Remember I said they didn't they haven't established a foreign mission society to go to Rome or any place else yet. They're still just evangelizing Jerusalem. And they're going to have to get to ultimately Samaria and further beyond. And so this man Stephen kind of sets the stage here because he's going to he's going to challenge this Jewish way of thinking that Somehow, God's uh, God's ministry, God's God is somehow still centered in the land of Israel, in the temple, in the law, and so forth. We're going to see that broken down here with Stephen, and then we'll see Philip, who takes the gospel to Samaria, remember, and then the apostle Paul, who is the apostle of Gentiles, and takes us to the end, uh, ends of the known world. Then. So we're looking at Stephen last time. We talked about Stephen. His uh, This section is really the ministry of Stephen or ultimately in, culminates in his martyrdom at the end of chapter 8 there. We noticed last time the opposition to Stephen's ministry. Stephen was one of those deacons, remember? One of those men chosen in Acts chapter 6. We noticed the opposition to him and we were looking uh, last time at the... Um, at the uh, defense of Stephen before the Sanhedrin. Remember chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? And remember the charges were that this fellow is speaking against the land, against the law, against the temple. He's speaking against God. He's speaking against Moses. He's challenging these uh, pillars of Jewish religion. And uh, Stephen is challenging those kinds of things. And so we noticed last time um, 
chapter 7, verses 2 through 36. We're looking at 2 through 36 here. This is Stephen's defense and his discussion about the land. Remember we said that these three pillars of Jewish religion were the land, that is, this is the land of Israel, this is where God meets with his people, and it's true, that's where the sanctuary was, that's where the temple was, the central sanctuary. So if you wanted, if you wanted to be right with God in the Old Testament, you had to come through Israel. You had to ultimately be a proselyte to Israel if you really wanted to be right with God, because God was to be worshipped in the temple in Jerusalem. This creates problems, as we said, because the Jews have become scattered in the diaspora. They're all around, and how, how do we deal with that? Well, we know the church is not, the New Testament church is not confined to the land of Israel or any particular land. It's not associated with any geographical region. And Stephen here is challenging the fact that, that God is no longer concerned about a specific geographical piece of land. It's, it's not perfectly obvious because the temple's still there and sacrifices. But it's going to be, you know, if the Romans are going to come in and destroy that temple, and it will become clear. They don't have the book of Hebrews, as we said, so this is something they're learning. But Stephen is challenging these things, and this is something we said that the apostles themselves don't say much about. It takes a man like Stephen to do this. And so he's he's challenging these things, and he's doing it in the way Jews commonly did. The, He's talking about the history of Israel here. He starts off by talking about Abraham, the father of the nation. And his point here is to argue that God has has God is not confined to the land of Israel. God has met with his people in many places outside of the land. And he starts with Abraham. Remember I said in verses 2 through 8, uh, God was with Abraham outside the land of in Mesopotamia. And we looked at that last time in verses uh, 2 through 8. Um, now in verses uh, 9 through 16, um, Stephen says that God was with Joseph and his brothers in Egypt. And as I mentioned here, the name Egypt is repeated six times in verses 9 through 16. So he's recounting the history of Israel from the Old Testament, but his emphasis here is on the fact that God was with with uh, Joseph and his brothers in Egypt. So you don't have to be in the land. Notice verse 9, Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing suffering. And our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he went, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was. And Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. And after this, Joseph sent for his Father Jacob and his whole family, 75 and all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in a tomb that Abraham had bought from uh, had bought for from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. So uh, the point here is that God was with uh, Jacob. He was with 
his sons, he was with Joseph uh, in Egypt in verses 9 through 16. And he ends up, notice, he says, their bodies were brought back to Shechem. Now, Shechem is this area here, and this is in Samaria here. This is in Samaria. We'll see more about Shechem in a moment here. But his point here is that uh, the, the patriarchs were brought back here to Shechem. Their bodies were brought to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had brought from the sons of Hamor. So uh, the patriarchs were buried in Shechem, which was hated Samaria. Remember, the Jews hated the Samaritans. And so he's trying to say everything that's happening is not happening down here in Jerusalem. They were buried in Shechem. I mean, contrast with the fact that uh, these Hellenists, these Hellenist, Hellenistic Jews we talked about, remember, they had moved back to the land of Israel to be buried in Jerusalem. They wanted to be buried there in the land. Well, here's the patriarchs. They're buried up in hated Samaria. So, again, he's trying to talk about, uh, Stephen is, not putting, don't put so much emphasis on the land in the sense of venerating or worshiping the land. Uh, now, in verses 17 through 36, he says that God was with Moses in Egypt and in other places, in Midian, in the desert, in, near Mount Sinai, in Egypt, in the Red Sea. So, again, so he's, he's showing all this activity of God outside the land. Verse 17, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously and so forth. 20, at that time Moses was born. He was no ordinary child. And he goes on to discuss Moses. He was placed outside. Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him and so forth. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Verse 23, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. He's just reciting history that any Jew would know. He's just reciting this. But the point of all this is that God was with Moses, and he was in Egypt to start off with. And he has to flee Egypt, remember, because he killed this Egyptian, verse 26, the two Israelites who were fighting said, uh, why do you want to hurt these men and so forth? Verse 27 uh, continues to talk about the story. But verse 29, when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. So God was with Moses in Egypt. He was with Moses in Midian. Then he's with him in the desert near Mount Sinai. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. And he went over to look, get a closer look, and he heard the Lord God say, heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare look at him. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. So it's not just Jerusalem that's holy ground. It's wherever God meets with his people that's holy ground here. Again, he's trying to get away from this emphasis of Jerusalem, the land, as being so primary and so essential that it leaves no place for further revelation. So what we have here is the Jews have had this revelation from Moses, 1400 B.C., 
Jewish religion hadn't changed in 1400 years. But now the Messiah has come. And he's brought new revelation. He's going to build his church, you remember he says in Matthew 16. He's going to build a church. So something new is happening. Something new is coming. And Stephen is trying to explain that by reciting the history of Israel and showing that it's not always been this way in the sense of Jerusalem, Judea being supreme. So he's with Moses in Egypt. He's with Moses, uh, verse 34, I've seen the impression of my people Israel. I will send you to Egypt, verse 34. So he's with Moses back there in Egypt. And then in the desert. This is the same Moses, verse 35, that rejected that had rejected uh, that had rejected with the words who made you ruler and judge he was sent to be their ruler and delivered by god himself he led them out of egypt and performed wonders and signs in egypt at the red sea and for 40 years in the wilderness so uh, he's trying to make his point about the land now he makes another point here the second point he wants to talk about is the law the Jews venerated the land, and they venerate the law, of course, the law of Moses, Moses and the law. And remember, Stephen is being accused of speaking against the law and against uh, against the Moses. Uh, as I say here, a second great pillar of Jewish religion in the first century was the law. Jewish exaltation of the law invariably involved both veneration of Moses, the lawgiver and an idealistic idealistic view that Israel's time in the desert um, about Israel's time in the desert in answering the charge that he was speaking the blasphemous words against Moses and against the law Stephen argues that in fact at the founding of the nation Israel was not herself very enthusiastic about Moses or the law and he makes a number of important points here Verse 37. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received the living words to pass on to us. So he... Uh, Stephen mentions here Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. As I say here, Moses pointed beyond himself and beyond the instruction that came through him to another whom God would raise up in the future to whom Israel must give heed and that therefore Israel cannot limit divine revelation and redemption to the confines of the Mosaic law, which is what they want to do. No, there's there's got to be room for further revelation in the Messiah. And, and Moses talked about this prophet who was coming. And, of course, this is Deuteronomy 18, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophet who was to come. And uh, notice he mentions he was, in the, he was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. It doesn't say anything about angels on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, but there's a tradition about angels having a part in the giving of the law. In fact, Paul confirms that. In Galatians 3.19, he mentions that angels were present at the giving of the law. And even later on, in verse 53, uh, it says, uh, 
you have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. So Stephen alludes to it again there in 53. So angels were involved in, in, the, in the giving of the law there on Mount Sinai. So first of all, Moses, uh, uh, Moses pointed beyond himself. Verse 39 and 40, here's the second thing about Moses. As I say, Moses had been rejected by his own people, but our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. And as for this fellow Moses, who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So, you know, this all, you know, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? Here's Jesus who comes on the scene. He's the promised Messiah. And just like they rejected Moses, Stephen says, <laughs> say, you're forgetting about that. You're esteeming Moses now, but remember what happened there. They rejected Moses made this golden calf and wanted to go back to Egypt. Well, this, of course, parallels Jesus' treatment. It explains why the majority of the people refused him and rejected him, even though he was the God's promised Messiah. Then verse 41, um, that was the time when they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and revealed and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, the moon, and the stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. As I say here, third, even though Moses was with them and had the living words of the law and the sacrificial system, the people fell into gross idolatry, actually opposed God. And he, you know, he quotes here from Amos chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, and verses 42 and 43. They turned away from Moses, worshiped these idols, they oppose God. And this is what they're doing now by opposing Jesus, the Messiah. They crucified him, they rejected him, and so forth. So, um, Stephen is defending himself by showing that you place too much emphasis on the land, you've left no place for further revelation in the Messiah, and you've you put too much emphasis on the law, which leaves no further revelation in the Messiah. So we know that all these things are going to change. There's no longer going to be a need to be in the land. There's no longer a need to keep the law of Moses, as we'll see. And then on the temple. This is a big one here. As I say, in this section, Stephen argues he's not committing blasphemy against the temple, but simply arguing against the veneration of the temple as the apex of revealed religion because it leaves no room for further revelation in Jesus of Nazareth. Our ancestors, he says in verse 44, had the tabernacle of the covenant. It had been made as God directed Moses. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them and took it to the land. It remained in the land until the time of David. He's just reciting this Jewish history. Verse 47. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, notice, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? So here's the point. Even though God had the tabernacle and had the temple, this was of God, at the same time, God was saying, I really can't be confined to a temple or a tabernacle. You can't just confine it. This is the place where I've decided to meet with Israel. This is the central sanctuary they are to come to. But I can't be confined to this temple or this sanctuary. And, of course, with the coming of the Messiah, all that's got to change. 
we can't have those sacrifices anymore because Jesus has made the final and complete and final sacrifice for sin. But that's going to take a while, as we'll see, to understand and develop. But Stephen is approaching that. And then he has this indictment in verse 51. You stiff-necked people. You can imagine they're loving to hear this. (laughs) Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. Remember, that means of not regenerate. Circumcision of the heart and the ears in the Old Testament means you've been born again. You've been been regenerated. But no, you're stiff-necked. You're unbelievers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the coming of the Messiah. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. Well, that certainly is not something they wanted to hear. So in verse... uh, 751 through 43, we have the stoning, uh, the indictment, I'm sorry, and then we have the stoning of Stephen in 754 through 81a here. Um, When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, verse 54, they were furious. They gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I mentioned here it's not perfectly clear if there's any real significance to Jesus standing. Something seems to be implied since the picture in Scripture is Jesus sitting at the Father's right hand. You know, we usually see in Scripture Jesus is sitting at the Father's right hand, but here he's standing. So what's implied there? What does that mean? You want to know what it means? I don't have the slightest idea. What really. Does Ken know? Huh? Does Ken know? No, he didn't. He didn't. <laughs> no. Either standing or sitting. People have, we don't really know why Stephen sees him standing. Some people say, there's good, there's good ideas, you know. Some would say, uh, He's standing to welcome his martyr home. You know, here's here's Stephen. He's going to be martyred, and he's standing to sort of welcome him home. Sometimes uh, judges are pictured as standing when they're uh, when they're giving out a sentence. And some would say the fact that Jesus is standing shows that he approves of what Stephen is saying. He's approving of what Stephen is saying. And he's welcomed him home. That makes sense. It's very possible that's what it is. Something like that makes makes good sense, but it doesn't tell us exactly. This is a there was a photo taken at that time, and I just have to get a copy. Just found it on the internet the other day. So you were there? Yeah. No, I wasn't there. But somebody, some alien had a camera. <laughs> But here's what is interesting. They covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
uh, as they hear a young man named Saul. The Greek word translated young man means a man between the ages of maybe 24 to 40. It's just a general term. So we're just trying to guess at what age he might be. I mentioned by this time Paul was a trained rabbi devoted to the Pharisaic interpretation of Judaism. Remember Galatians 1, 13 and 14. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church and I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So here's here's Paul. He's mentioned to be there as a witness, uh, witnessing, laid their coats at the feet of this young man named Saul. Um, Paul, it seems to suggest, had a responsible role. Acts twenty two twenty, Paul says, And when the blood of, the young, of, of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. So, Paul was clearly associated with the Sanhedrin in this. This is a Sanhedrin matter. They're, they're, uh, they're the ones who are determined to see this man stopped and silenced and so forth, and Saul is there. And so, clearly, he's there at least as an official observer. People debate whether Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin himself. We're not sure about that. We know that Regulations written a little later than the New Testament, say around 200. Regulations that we know from the year 200 say that to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be 30 years old. So Paul could have been 30. You had to be married. And so that's that's the bugaboo here is, was Paul married or not? He certainly wasn't married later on, but he could have been married. His wife could have died. We don't know. So we just don't know whether Paul was a member or whether he is just acting for, sort of as a representative acting for the Sanhedrin. But certainly he has an important role here, as he himself says. So while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. So it's, it's quite interesting here that this man, Saul, remember I've mentioned this before, he's the fellow who's really going to take up the message of Stephen. He's the person who's going to, develop, who's going to be given this revelation about th- that we're in a new dispensation, we're in a new age, we're no longer under the law. We're not tied to that central sanctuary anymore. Those sacrifices aren't really relevant anymore. We're not tied to the land, we're not tied to Moses so it's, it's ironic, isn't it, that the man who's responsible right there to kill Stephen is the man who's going to really pick up that message and develop it and so forth later on, as we'll see. There's some question about the legality here. I just mentioned some thoughts about it. Uh, some facts might point to its legality, the fact that the stoning was outside the city. The Old Testament required that someone be stoned, be taken outside the city. Witnesses participated in the stoning, so that was required. I think this is more likely a result of sort of a mob action. That is, there are other factors that seem to suggest this was just a a spur-of-the-moment sort of mob action. Jewish law that's written down a little later, around 200, remember I talked about, called the Mishnah, 
says that an execution could not take place in the same day as a trial. You couldn't try somebody and execute them on that same day. And uh, that's, that seems uh, like what we have here, so that it doesn't seem legal in that sense. Um, also, the type of burial that Stephen gets, it says, God, verse, chapter 8, verse 2, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Well, if you were executed as a criminal in Israel, you couldn't be given this kind of burial. We also know the Romans weren't consulted. Jewish Jews did not have the right of capital punishment on their own, generally. They couldn't do this. So it looks like they just did it as a mob action. Remember, in the case of uh, Jesus, they had to consult the Roman authorities. They had to consult Pilate. They didn't consult any authorities here. They just looks like they just got so mad at Stephen that they just rushed out and killed him. Kind of like a mob action here. So more likely this was not really a legally sanctioned thing by the Roman government, but I'm sure the Romans weren't greatly concerned about another Jew being killed. That wasn't any great problem for them. Well, what's the aftermath here of this stoning of Stephen? Chapter 8, 1, verse uh, B through verse 3. It says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. This is a, a difficult verse because it says that this persecution broke out against the church and all except the apostles were scattered. Why were the apostles not scattered? Why Why did they remain in, Jer- in Jerusalem? And again, we don't really know why, they, why this happened. One suggestion I mentioned here is, well, maybe they just said, we're just going to stay here and if we have to die, we'll die. We're, we're going to stay at our post. That's a possibility. Um. I say here, if all means all, then this cannot have been permanent since later we find the church existing in Jerusalem. In other words, it says here that uh, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Well, it doesn't obviously mean all in a permanent sense because later we find the church existing in Jerusalem. We find disciples there and people, like I mentioned like 926, but, you know, there's verse after verse, which says, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. This is the Apostle Paul. So there were disciples or Christians in Jerusalem. So this scattering, whatever it was, was not a permanent scattering, you know, if that's what it was. It could be that all doesn't mean everyone, but just a lot of people. Sometimes all just means a large group of people. I mentioned some verses there, like, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, where, it, where a lot of times all just means a large group. Like in Acts 1, 1, Luke says, In my former book, Theopolis, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. In my former book, Theopolis, I wrote about, that is in the Gospel of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Well, not every single little detail in Jesus, but most of everything, most, most stuff he did. So sometimes all just means a great number, the majority maybe. And that's, that may be what's happening here, that this was a persecution where most of the Christians left, but they certainly didn't leave permanently. Another suggestion 
that makes a lot of sense here is that mainly, mainly it's mainly it's the Hellenistic Christians who are who are scattered. Remember, we have two types of Christians here in Jerusalem. We have two types of Jews. We've got the Hebraic Christians or Hebraic Jews. We got the Hellenistic Christians. Remember, the Hellenistic Jews were Jews who had moved back to Jerusalem uh, from the diaspora, from the various parts of the Roman Empire, had moved back to live there. And remember, we said that they're looked upon with suspicion by the Jews who born in the land. They're looked upon with suspicion. And remember, Stephen is a member of one of those Hellenistic synagogues, and they don't like Stephen because he could get them in trouble. He's saying all these things that are contrary to Judaism and so forth. So it may be that the main persecution by the Sanhedrin was not the Jews like the apostles who were uh, Hebraic Jews who grew up in Jerusalem, who spoke Hebrew, who were going to the temple and all this. Maybe it was mainly the Hellenistic Christians, possibly. Uh, in chapter 11, it does mention that it's mainly the Hellenistics, Hellenistic Jews who were driven out. Uh, chapter 11, verse 19. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word among the Jews. Uh, so these would have been Hellenistic Jews that went out to places that spoke Greek where they could communicate with them and talk with them. Uh, so it could be that the persecution was mainly against these people like Stephen, who were these Hellenistic Jews who were under suspicion anyway for their lack of conformity to Judaism and so forth. Verse uh, 2, Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them into prison. So Saul seems to be the leader of the persecution of the Christians. He's there at the stoning of Stephen, but he also seems to be the leader involved here with uh, persecuting uh, Christians now. Uh, certainly with the encouragement of the Sanhedrin. I, I mentioned Paul later reports in Acts 26.10, he says this, On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Well, we'll come back to Paul here after the ministry of Philip here. So we come to... Uh, the early ministries of Philip here, chapter 8, verses 4 through 40. First of all, we see the evangelization of Samaria. Remember, Jesus says you're going to be witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And now we're going to see how the gospel comes to Samaria. It's through another one of these deacons, we say, one of these men chosen in Acts chapter 6, uh, first Stephen and now Philip here. Um, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. So he goes to the Samaritans. He goes to Samaria. Now he says he goes down. If you ever go to Jerusalem, you'll see this, that 
Jerusalem is pretty high up in the mountains there, in the Gallup Mountains. And uh, if you're going up this way, you're going down. If you go down to Jericho, you go down to Dead Sea, you go down. If you go to the sea coast, you go down. So even though you're going north here, you're going down, you know, in, in elevation geographically. So it says that uh, they went down, or uh, Philip goes down, went down to a city in Samaria. And he's going to evangelize these Samaritans. I mentioned a little bit about the Samaritans here. On, I say the Samaritans were greatly despised by the Jews because of their impure bloodlines and their religious deviations from Orthodox Judaism. We know a little bit about this from the Gospels, remember? Following the fall of the Northern Kingdom in 722, remember first the ten tribes fell to the Assyrians, remember, 722 B.C.? And what did the Assyrians do? They carried off a large part of the population and they moved other people back in. That's what the Assyrians did. They, they thought that the way you conquer a territory is conquer it and take the people out and put them in a land they don't know and take those people and put them in that land and they'll lose their national identity and they won't be rebellious and so forth like that. So that was the Assyrian policy. So I say the largely depopulated region was resettled by colonists brought in by the Assyrians from various parts of their empire, Second Kings 17.24. They intermarried with the Jews who had been left behind and the Samaritans were their descendants. So here we have people who are half Gentile in a sense, half Jewish, these Samaritans. They opposed the rebuilding of the Jerusalem temple in the 5th century B.C. So Israel is, uh, the ten tribes are carried off. Then the Babylonians come in, Nebuchadnezzar, and they carry off Judea. A Judah, you remember, and then they're allowed to come back, you remember, and they return to the land, and when they return to the land, they have some opposition, and one opposite, some opposition comes from the Samaritans, Nehemiah, we won't take time to look at Nehemiah and so forth, but remember from Nehemiah, there was opposition from the Samaritans to rebuilding that temple. So they opposed this in the 5th century, that is the 400s B.C., and eventually, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim in the time of Alexander the Great. So, the Jews, the Jews who came back, uh, separated themselves from these Samaritans, and the Samaritans eventually built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. So here is uh, Samaria. This is Shechem. And we talked about Shechem before, where the patriarchs were buried. So you have these two mountains, Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim. Joseph's tomb, you know, the tomb of the patriarchs is here. Um, here's Nabalus here. You kind of see that in the picture here. Jacob's well. When I went to Israel, uh, it was before all this, some of the, a lot of these, you know, these uprisings and so forth. We were able to go to this location, to the West Bank here. And uh, you can go to what's called Jacob's Well. It's a well there that supposedly is that well. Nobody knows for sure if it is. But it's kind of a, now it's, it's they built a whole kind of church around it now and so forth. But you can go and get some water out of Jacob's Well if you like. If you like. 
And Shechem is down here. There's some ruins of Shechem. This is the most uncomfortable place I've felt in the whole... This is where this is where it was the most terrifying. And the whole time we were in Israel was right there in Shechem. Because there was these Arabs all around us watching us. We came in on a bus, and we, we'd go into this Shechem here, the ruins of Shechem. And they're just watching us like... You know, just, just, they're just surrounding us, just <laughs> all around us. So it wasn't a very pleasant experience here. So here is Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And the reason there were so many around here, because that Nabalus is right here. This was Yasser Arafat's headquarters. So the Israelis destroyed it right there. So this is right downtown. This is right here is where Shechem is at. Here's Mount Gerizim. Here's Mount Ebal. So there's Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal. There's Mount Gerizim. Um, as I mentioned here, um, they opposed the rebuilding of the temple in the 5th century and eventually built their own temple on Mount Gerizim in the time of Alexander the Great. Remember John 4.20. I don't know if I put that up there. There's Mount the Gerizim summit there. Um, remember John 4.20 when Jesus goes to Samaria and he meets the woman at the well there and uh, she says, uh, you know, let me ask you this question. You're a religious, you, you're, you're, you know some stuff about the Bible. Uh, your forefather, you, you say, we sh- you sh- the Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem, but, you know, our people say we should worship here on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, you know. And so what's the, what's the truth on that situation? So the, the Samaritans had built a temple on Mount Gerizim. As I say, that temple was eventually destroyed by the Jews, the, the Maccabeans, in 128 B.C. So we're talking about the hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews. The, 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 uh, the Samaritans hated the Jews. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The, Jews, the Samaritans opposed the building of the temple. They built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. The Jews destroyed it. You know, so you wouldn't like the Jews if they destroyed your temple on Mount Gerizim in 128. I'll say the Samaritans accepted only the Pentateuch as scripture and looked for a Messiah called the Tahib, meaning the restorer, who would fulfill Deuteronomy 18.18. Some changes were made to the Pentateuch to support the Samaritan theology and Mount Gerizim as the proper place of worship. Here is Mount Gerizim today. The, The... the Samaritans, there are still Samaritans, the exact number is unclear, maybe about a thousand Samaritans left. Some of, them, some of them live in Tel Aviv and some of them live here. About half live in Tel Aviv and about half live here, supposedly. But there are a small number of people. There was an article in, the, in uh, a couple years ago, about two and a half, three years ago, that the Samaritans, the leaders of the Samaritans, were going to start allowing intermarriage because the gene pool was getting so small they were going to allow some people from the outside to marry in to replenish sort of their gene pool but they actually sacrifice a a lamb at Passover every year so if you were there you could see they're the only Jews the only Old Testament religion people they think they're the true Jews they think they're the true descendants of Moses they consider themselves They, they, they have their own Pentateuch here's the Samaritan Pentateuch they have their own copy of scripture called the Samaritan Pentateuch. It's just Hebrew 
but it's just it's written in Samaritan script, but it's still the same thing. And so uh, they think of themselves as the true Jews. In Deuteronomy 27, 1 through 6, Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, keep all these commandments that I give you today. When you have crossed the Jordan into the land, the Lord your God is giving you. Set up some large stones and coat them with plaster. Write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, a land flowing milk and honey, just as the Lord, the, the God of your ancestors, promised you. And when you have crossed the Jordan, set up these stones on Mount Ebal, as I have commanded you today, as I command you today, and coat them with plaster. Build there an altar of the Lord your God, an altar of stones. Do not use any iron tool on them and so forth. Build an altar. So the first place that, that the Jews worshipped were there was on Mount Ebal when they crossed in the land. And the, if you look at the Samaritan Pentateuch, they changed that to Mount Gerizim. <laughs> so in their copy of scriptures, it says Mount Gerizim, because that's where they built their temple, and that's where they worship. So they're still Samaritans today. They still, and, and they're, they're sort of accepted by the, by the Arabs who control that area. They're not as hated. They're not hated like the Jews in Jerusalem and so forth like that. So they're still accepted. Remember, there's a Samaritan woman. You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How do you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So uh, Philip is going up to Samaria here to proclaim the Messiah. Verse 6. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many... And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Now this Philip, uh, we assume, is uh, one of the seven of Acts chapter 6. Remember we've seen Stephen, and it just introduces him as Philip went down to a city in Samaria. We assume he's the Philip of Acts 6, one of those, quote, deacons. He's mentioned in Acts 21.8 later on as being Philip the Evangelist. Remember, he has the daughters who prophesy and so forth that Paul runs into there in Caesarea. So verse 9, um, our, I have a note here about a city in Samaria here. Um, some question about exactly where he went to. See, there's Shechem, where we were talking about. There's Mount Ebal, there's Mount Gerizim. It doesn't exactly say in the text, it says a city in Samaria. He went down to a city in Samaria. Did he go to somewhere around Shechem? Did he go more to what's called Sebasti, which is right here? All this is Samaritan territory. We're not exactly sure. I mentioned that there's considerable debate about the identification of this city. There was no city actually named Samaria in New Testament times. Samaria denotes a district. The Old Testament city of Samaria had been rebuilt by Herod the Great and renamed Sebasti in honor, uh, in honor of the Roman emperor. Sebastos is equivalent to Augustus. It's doubtful Sebastos in view since it was a Hellenistic city and Philip was preaching to genuine Samaritans. It might have been Shechem, which had been the religious headquarters of Samaritans. However, its status at this time is uncertain. It was Remember, they destroyed the temple and then they destroyed their city, the, the Jews did. Could have been another city. Geta, Justin Martyr says, was the home of Simon. So we don't know. Somewhere in this area, Philip is preaching to these people here. And it says, uh, now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery, verse 9, 
in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. Uh, this Simon is commonly called Simon Magus. Sometimes you'll see discussions, Simon Magus. Magus is the word for the Greek word for magician. So he's called Simon the magician, Simon the sorcerer, at least by the church fathers. So the early church writers talk about this man from Scripture, but they talk about him with other traditions. We don't know whether they're true or not. Uh, the church fathers say that he was the father of Gnosticism. And if you're familiar with, with Gnosticism or not, Gnosticism was a heresy that developed from Christianity. And it develops, it, it doesn't fully develop until about A.D. 150, or 100 years after the New Testament. But it's a, it's, it's a heresy that seems to be around at the end of the New Testament period. Remember, the Gnostics taught different things about Jesus. The Gnostics believed, the Gnostics believed that the material body was evil, that the physical was evil. It was the spirit that counted. And so the Gnostics discounted the physical completely and totally. That meant they had a problem explaining Jesus in the Gospels because Jesus seemed to have a physical body. So if the, if the physical body is evil, why would God connect himself with a physical body? So Gnostics had different ways of looking at it. Some Gnostics said he didn't really have a body. He just looked like he had a body. It was kind of like a ghost-like, and he just appeared. Sometimes you'll hear this word, docetic Gnostics, because the Greek word dokeo, seem or appear. He just appeared to have a body. They're the docetics. Others said, no, uh, what happened was the spirit of Christ came upon this man, Jesus, at his baptism and just used him and then left him at, before he was crucified. So, the, so, the, so the, the Christ wasn't really crucified. So they had some very strange ideas as a heretical sect that came out of Christianity. And so the church fathers said that Simon was the father of this. Now, we don't know anything in the biblical text to suggest that. We know a lot of, the church fathers talk a lot about this Simon, this guy, but, you know, we don't know from Scripture if that's true or not. Luke just says he's a magician. He's hungry for power. He's probably hungry for money, as we'll see here. Well, it says in verse 10, all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is the rightly called the great power of God. So apparently he's claiming to be divine. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. That's why the church fathers call him Simon Magus. That's the word there, Simon the sorcerer, Simon the magician. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem, now we'll have to come back to that verse in a moment, verse 13, Simon himself believed. Okay? When the, verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. 
They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, let's talk about this for a moment. I say here, the Samaritans were already saved. It says, you know, Simon believed and was baptized. These Samaritans believed the preaching of Philip. They were baptized and so forth. The apostles come, and they don't preach to them. They don't, they don't preach the gospel. It doesn't say anything about they preached the gospel and they got saved. So I'm arguing that these people were already saved. But it says they placed their hands on them and they, they might receive the Holy Spirit. It hadn't come upon them because they had simply been baptized, you know. They placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. I say here, but the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them in the same way as the Jews at Pentecost. That's how I'm interpreting what Luke is saying here. The Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. In other words, I'm saying that these people were indwelt by the Holy Spirit already. You can't be a Christian and not have the Spirit. If any person, Paul says in Romans 8, does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So when a person is saved, they're regenerate. They're born again. That's a work of the Spirit, regeneration. You can't, you can't be saved without the Spirit. You can't be born again without the Spirit. Without the Spirit working in you and dwelling in you. So, I know, I know it looks like in the text, what I just said is wrong, but I'm, I'm going to try to argue that, that that's not wrong here. So I'm saying here, what had been withheld until Peter and John arrived were the external manifestations such as tongues. So you remember on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came, there was this outward uh, evidence of the coming of the Spirit. And I think what's happening here is these outward evidences of the coming of the Spirit were withheld. Notice verses 17 and 18. When Peter and John placed their hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands... He offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now it doesn't say, it doesn't say when when uh, when the apostles laid their hands, Peter and John, on the Samaritans, that they spoke in tongues. I think they did. My point is, when they when these people got saved initially, they got saved just like you and I did. We get saved, there's no outward indication of the Spirit's work internally within us. It's an internal work. But on the day of Pentecost, there was this demonstration that this happened by these miracles, these signs, this speaking in tongues. And and, and Simon sees something. Simon says, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given, how did he, you know, how did he see that? He saw some evidence of the Spirit. So I think what's happened is um, when, when the Samaritans were saved, there was no outward demonstration like speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost. The apostles came, they laid hands on them. Well, what, why would you have this why would you have this going on? See, I think this was done to show the Samaritans that true religion, true salvation is of the Jews. In other words, we have this split between the Samaritans and the Jews going back hundreds and hundreds of years. Remember, uh, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, 
when he's talking to her. And verse 22, she brings up that controversy. Uh, she says in verse 19, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. You know, who's right? Woman, Jesus replied. Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now that's what Stephen's been trying to say. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews, Jesus says. So she's, she's, he's, he's telling her, you're wrong. Your Mount Gerizim and all that stuff, that's just a bunch of bunk. Salvation is of the Jews. So here we have the, the, the apostle Philip going there. And if the Samaritans, uh, I think God wants to make sure there's no division between the Samaritan church and the Jerusalem church. The Samaritans can't claim that they got this on their own. They're, now they're tied to the Jerusalem church. The apostles come, they lay hands on them. I think there's an outward demonstration of speaking in tongues, I think. Other miraculous things. Because Simon sees that and he says, man, I want that. I can make some money. If I, could, if I could put my hands on people and they could do these kinds of things, I could get money for that, you know. So my point is, there's been this schism between the church, between the Samaritans and the Jews, and we don't want that in the church. Because in the church, there's neither Jew nor Samaritan. Jew or Gentile, as Paul says. There's neither slave or free. You know, there's, there's not these social stratifications and divisions. So Peter is sort of using his keys of the kingdom. You know, he's already spoken at Pentecost, Peter has, right? He's speaking with the Samaritans. Pretty soon he's going to kind of open the door of the Gentiles when we get to Cornelius. He's going to go to the house of Cornelius. And Cornelius is already saved, as we'll see. But he's already got the Holy Spirit, but Peter puts his hands on them and when Peter is speaking and they receive the Spirit, we see a, we see a same kind of indication. So uh, I think that's what's happening here. What, what was withheld in this case was not the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, but the outward manifestation was withheld here from the Samaritans so that they couldn't claim they're somehow distinct or separate from the Jews. Peter and John come down, put hands on them. That's when they get this outward manifestation. Now the Jews and Samaritans are tied together here. Salvation is of the Jews, ultimately. It's a Jewish Messiah, not a Samaritan Tahib, not a Samaritan Messiah. Well, when Simon saw this, he wanted this ability. He offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. I'd like this gift. This is a great gimmick. This is good. Well, you see where I'm going with this. Even though it says that Simon himself believed, I think Jesus, Luke is just reporting outwardly what, he, what happened. He made a profession of faith. But I think we can see in the text the way he's denounced that he's probably not really a regenerate person. Well, let's stop here for tonight, and we'll pick this up next week, all right? Thanks a lot.